Today's scripture comes from Luke 10, 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring, an oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful that we can gather once again together here in the name of your son, Jesus. We're grateful that you, as we gather, are present with us by your spirit. We ask you that you would help us to engage with this text and to learn from it ways that we can live that would glorify you and that we would be able to trust in the message of the gospel even deeper than we do right now. Lord, that we would be able to do these things so that you'd be glorified in our lives as we seek to love and serve our neighbors in the city of Vancouver and beyond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as we continue to look at the parables of Jesus today and then uh, as we're going to continue on in the coming weeks, it's important that we understand that the parables are giving us a window into the nature and character of God. Most of Jesus' parables have a fairly obvious application to our lives, but the parables of Jesus are not simply teaching us how to live as good moral citizens of our community as much as they're showing us how to live here and now as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Anyone can hear this passage that you just heard read and they can recognize the implications of how to be a better neighbor. Don't be like the Levite or the priest and pass on by when you see someone in need. Be like the good Samaritan, stop and help. That's why lots of places all over North America and I think even in Western Europe still have good Samaritan laws. Good Samaritan laws legally protect someone who steps into an emergency situation and seeks to help, seeks to do the right thing. We have a law in British Columbia called the Good Samaritan Act. It means that you cannot be held liable for what happens when you are helping someone in an emergency situation, providing you are actually trying to help them. Now, that's a good law. It's based uh, on, on the surface level understanding of what is being taught in this parable. But what we need to really wrestle with is not what is obviously revealed in the parable, but what greater realities Jesus is pointing to through the parable. And so that's the goal today is to look at it on the surface, but also to go a little bit deeper with it. Now, we're dropping into the middle of a narrative here in Luke's gospel. And just a chapter earlier, Jesus had already set his face and his direction to head toward Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and be crucified and then die. 
So everything from the end of Luke chapter nine onward through the gospel of Luke is moving Jesus in in the story of what he's doing toward the cross. He's moving in that direction. And that's important for us to understand. And and I just want to set this up for us. So we're in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter nine, end of it. He says he set his face to head toward Jerusalem. Now in Luke chapter 10, Jesus appoints 72 of his followers to get out there and spread the good news of the coming kingdom. The good news of the fact that the kingdom of God arrived in the person of Jesus. And so they're out there preaching the message that the kingdom of God is near. And when they do, they come back with this astounding report that they've seen people set free. They've got the spiritual authority over demons. All kinds of good stuff is happening and they're thrilled. And so they come back with this really good report and Jesus goes, hey guys, that's amazing. But, it says in verse 20 of Luke chapter 10, nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, talking about their names being written in heaven is another way of them talking about, uh, another way of talking about them inheriting eternal life. He goes, I know there's lots of really good things happening, but there's something that is of primary importance for you to rejoice in. Your names are written in heaven. He's saying all authority and all power that you now have because of your relationship with me, all the experience of seeing God work in and through you as you're ministering to people, it's great. Don't forget that your primary joy, your primary place of rejoicing is that your names are written in heaven. He's saying you belong to God. You have eternal life. Now he's there talking to the 72 who've been sent out and then who've come back and they're giving their report and and others are listening in, including a lawyer. And the lawyer is intrigued with what Jesus has just said to the 72 who've come back with this good report and he asks a question. Now our text, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now the lawyer here in this passage is not like a lawyer that we would have today. The lawyer in the passage was an expert on religious law. The first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. They were experts on this. And he's there to check in on what this guy Jesus is teaching. He's come to listen in. He's come to put Jesus to the test. And in all likelihood, this lawyer, this this expert in the law, is a priest who's off duty as far as his responsibilities in the temple, but he is on duty as far as checking in on this new preacher and what he has to say. So he's there. He's just heard Jesus talking about eternal life with the 72 disciples that he had sent out who had now come back, and he breaks into their private conversation. He breaks in it. He's been listening, and now he injects himself into the conversation, and he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's testing Jesus. And Jesus answers with a question, because Jesus is wise enough to answer with a question when you know the person asking the question has a wrong motivation with it. He goes, well, you're the, you're the expert. You got all the clothes on. It says that you're the expert. What do you think? I mean, Jesus is probably nicer than that, but... What do you think? What do you say? The lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a solid answer. And Jesus says so. He goes, yeah, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. And the religious expert, he's answered the question, the question that he himself asked. He's now given the answer. 
by pulling together the same two foundational Old Testament passages that Jesus used when he was summarizing the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, love God. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor. So the expert knows his stuff, draws together those two things. Love God, love your neighbor. He knows what's going on. But he also knows that's going to be very hard to do. So he asks for a little more. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? The religious expert is not so much asking who he is free to love, who he is free to extend his love to. He is more asking who he is justified in withholding his love from. Do you see that? He's not asking the question because he's like, Jesus, I really want to love everybody. I'm just making sure you're okay with that. Who's my neighbor? In other words, who am I justified not loving? He wants Jesus to define neighbor. Jesus, who am I justified in not extending my love to? Jesus answers him with this parable. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on by, they passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, and I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the expert in religious law says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now Jesus' answer in this parable to the question of the religious expert, the answer that he gives is a very holy, godly smack upside the head that you get when you completely miss the point. It's even a little sharper when you realize that the lawyer was likely a member of the priesthood. Now add that to the fact that the Jews disliked the Samaritans. And I suppose the word disliked may be an understatement. They hated the Samaritans. And that, actual, that hate was actually reciprocal. The Samaritans did not like the Jews. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. They, the Jews thought they were racial half-breeds who worshipped wrong. And the Samaritans thought that the Jews were weird and they worshipped wrong. And so they'd been at each other for a very long time doing things like desecrating each other's temples and all sorts of stuff like that. And when Jesus is talking to an upstanding expert of the law and the story that he tells has the Samaritan as the one who is doing it well and the one who is doing the true neighborly duty to the other, it drives the point home a little deeper. The lawyer knew the right answer to the question. He could rightly interpret the Old Testament law of neighborliness, and that's good, But Jesus is not looking for a right interpretation as much as he is looking for an internalization of that truth followed by the action of doing it. See, our hearing of the truth is authenticated as what we believe when we do it. Let me give you an example. I can stand up here and I can preach about what it means to properly love. I, in this situation, am the religious expert. You're welcome. 
I can stand up here all the time and I can talk about how to love God, how to love your neighbor, the way that we should live, the ought-tos of the Christian faith. I can tell you how we ought to do lots and lots of things. You know who that's hardest to receive from? The, the, the people who have the hardest time hearing that? People closest to me. Because there is a disconnect between what I know I ought to do and what I actually do. The religious experts don't always get it right. I can stand up here and preach about what it means to properly love, but I screwed it up royally this week. I screwed up royally more often than you would think, but it just so happens I can tell you about it today. I screwed it up. In the midst of preparing for this, I studied this passage. I literally got deep into this passage. I can tell you everything about this passage. I could preach three sermons on this passage, which is the hard part of preaching this passage. And then I can leave my study and I can go to my home where I then forget everything I've learned and do not apply it. In the midst of preparing for this, I did exactly what the lawyer is doing, albeit in a very different situation. In my situation, I looked for the bare minimum of my own personal responsibility and I did that. And when I was told that what I did was not loving, I used my religious expert nature to argue defensively to justify myself. I was totally wrong. I was 100% wrong. I missed the forest for the trees. I walked up to the tee and I took a big swing and I had a complete miss. I duffed it. I whiffed it. I missed it. I screwed up. Like the expert of religious law, I basically looked for a loophole and I did the absolute bare minimum in action and I did it without love and that meant that I had utterly failed and I needed to repent. And how many of you know, thanks be to God, he hears us when we come to him. When we repent of our sin, when we seek to make it right with the people we've sinned against, he hears us and he is kind and he forgives us. Our hearing is authenticated in our doing. And our doing without love, seeking only to justify ourselves, is empty. See, we're more like the religious expert than we think. We look for loopholes in all kinds of areas. Now, it's gotten rather quiet. I'm guessing that's because you're not familiar with this and I'm the only one who's messed it up, so I'll explain again from my own life. We're more like the religious experts than we think. We do it in many areas of our lives when we carry with us the same posture. I'm looking for the bare minimum that I have to do. I'm looking for a loophole that gets me out. Tell me who I am free to not love. We might do it with our giving. And we go, what, is, what does generosity really mean? Like, Jesus, how much? We go, oh. We do it with our holiness. The half-truth that we tell, we go, that wasn't really a lie. It was just a half-truth. I'm okay. The second glance I took at that person who I am not married to, it wasn't a lustful look. I was just noticing. No harm. I know drunkenness is sin, but how many glasses of wine can I have? We ask these questions, and when we ask these questions in this way, we're revealing ourselves to be a little bit more like the religious expert than we think. We're missing the spirit of the law. We're looking for a loophole to justify ourselves according to the letter of the law, and in doing so, we fail. 
Now come back to the text. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? We need to realize that part of the origin of the question that the lawyer is asking comes from a very strangely, narrowly defined view of the neighbor. And Jesus is gently correcting this view of the neighbor. Basically, the understanding that prevailed in the days of Jesus was that your neighbor was somebody who was just like you, who thought like you, who was aligned with people that you are aligned with. Your neighbor to them was somebody from your own race, your own social status, and your own religious worldview. And Jesus is flipping that on its head. He's blowing all of those definitions out of the water. Scott McKnight says something very helpful about this. He said, the word neighbor means one's fellow human being with whom one has some kind of relationship. Next door neighbor, fellow townsperson, person in the adjacent village, government official who works in your community, etc. But the term was usually exclusively viewed as, one, uh, as one's fellow Jewish compatriot. Hence, neighbor often lacked, lacked any sense of diversity. This is where Jesus alters the meaning of the term. Now, I don't want to correct Dr. McKnight, but I think he does more than alter. I think he corrects. He corrects the meaning of the term. Jesus is correcting that. What makes someone our neighbor? In Jesus' parable, they are fellow human beings in need. There's no room for racial or religious discrimination when we ask the question, who is my neighbor? That's part of the question That's the part where this question comes from. If you wrongly define neighbor, you can likely end up with some sort of idea that there are groups of people who you are justified in not caring for at all. So it's fantastic. Jesus corrects the wrong definition of neighbor and he expands it out from people just like you, who think like you, who are aligned with people that you're aligned with, people who are from your own race, your own social status, your own religious worldview, your own political affiliations. He's blown that out basically to mean anyone in need. Not because they deserve your care, not because they somehow got themselves into it, or maybe that something just happened. I don't it just takes all the excuses out of it. So all the defenses that we want to put in place. Well, that person lived their life in a negative way and kind of made mistakes, and that's on them. They made that bed. Don't care. They're in need. It takes all the excuses out of it. Look from Genesis to Revelation and find a reason or a justification where somewhere God says you don't need to worry about them. I challenge you, you will not find it. In the kingdom of God, neighbor love knows no bounds. And here's the problem. You fast forward from the early 30s and first century Palestine You fast forward to 2023 in the city of Vancouver. Here's the problem. I think the problem today is perhaps not that we have too narrow a view of neighbor. It might be. But I think perhaps we might have too broad a view of neighbor. If I say everyone is my neighbor, it can actually be an excuse for ignoring the second part of the great commandment to love God and love your neighbor. It can be an excuse to ignore the love your neighbor part of it rather than obey it. Because if we define neighbor in the broadest way possible, where it's a globalized definition of neighbor, I just think we miss the point. I think we're rationalizing an incorrect definition of neighbor just like the lawyer was. Jay Pathak wrote a book called The Art of Neighboring. And in that book, he said, when we aim for everything, we hit nothing. So when we insist we're neighbors with everybody, often we end up being neighbors with nobody. That's our human nature. We become like the lawyer looking for a loophole. We tell ourselves that we've got a lot going on in our lives. So surely the great commandment applies only to the wounded enemy lying on the road, doesn't it? 
Surely we haven't come across any of those lately. Surely we're doing just fine when it comes to loving our neighbors. Right? People who say, I love the world. Love the whole world. The whole world's easy to love. You're hard to love. It's easy to sit there and go, we love all people. Really? What's your neighbor's name? Oh, it got quiet again. Mm. I went through one of those experiences where it got quiet again. I was in church planting, apprentice, or church planting assessment. Allison and I were in there. They asked a question. Hey, church planter, you want to go and church plant and you want to see people come to Christ? You want to start a new church in a new city to reach people? Praise God. What's your neighbor's name? And I was like, oh, we live in a new development? <laughs> We did. Thank God I knew one of my neighbor's names. I love all people so much that I want to move from Alberta to Vancouver to start a new church. Okay, what's your neighbor's name in Red Deer? It's like, right. I can tell you about the doctrine of the mission of God. I can preach to you a faithful Christology from Genesis to Revelation. I can exegete any text you put in front of me. I'm pretty good at this part of it. What's your neighbor's name? It's very easy for us to say, I love everyone. I love everyone. Cool. Good for you. Love your neighbor. That's a challenge. We need to love our literal neighbors. See, Jesus is assuming that his hearers will love their literal neighbors, and he's challenging the lawyer to open that up, to include some people that he would have previously felt comfortable excluding. But for us, we might need to actually get off that feel-good wagon of loving the whole world and learn our literal neighbor's name. That's what I'm saying. See, Jesus was taking a narrow view of neighbor and expanding it to be more inclusive and more universal. And my fear is that in our desire for universal definitions of neighbor, we've actually done the opposite and we've neglected the people closest to us. So we want to get the neighbor thing right. It's very important. And I think that's right for us to do that. But I still think we're actually on the surface of this parable. I actually think that what I've already said in this message so far could be preached in a lot of different places that don't actually call Jesus Lord. It'd be like a, a lot of good stuff about how to be a good neighbor. If, if everybody in the world believed that the Good Samaritan was to be the model that we upheld, we'd have a lot more neighborliness in all of the cities that we come from. It's true. I think it's probably the best known of Jesus' parables and the cultural application of it, which is what most people assume, is that we should care for everyone regardless of race, religion, and socioeconomic status. I mean, one of my kids' basketball clubs says they do that. There's no religious worldview around it. They just, they just want to encourage players no matter of race, religion, or socioeconomic status. That's a good thing. I'm glad they do that, but it doesn't make them inherently godly. And that's what I've tried to point us to here. We don't get to define narrow, uh, neighbor so narrowly that we can exclude people. And we don't get to define neighbor so broadly that we don't care about people in our immediate proximity. So, okay, we shouldn't be the priest who came and saw the situation and just passed by. We shouldn't be the Levite who came and saw the situation and just passed by. We should be like the Samaritan who saw a man beaten, stripped, and lying there half dead and risked his own life to care for him. That's good. In their day, the man's clothing would have identified his race and religion and social status. But you've got to remember, and I know this is a bit graphic for a Sunday morning on a long weekend, but that guy was laying there naked. All of his outer garments that would have identified him as a certain people are taken. He can't glance down on the side of the road and go, oh, that's a Jewish guy, or that's a Samaritan, or that's a priest, or that guy's poor, or that guy's rich. He doesn't have the ability to do that. The guy is literally beaten, naked, and unconscious. 
the Good Samaritan just stops because he is a fellow human being in need. Not only that, he didn't just pick the guy up, throw him on his own animal and take him to the inn and then drop him off and say, well, I've done my duty for the day. No, he goes into the innkeeper, he pays for his stay and he says, I promise you, I will pay any debt if what I've prepaid is exceeded by the person who I've just dropped off. I'll take it. Further to that point, the man that he helped was likely an enemy. As it would have been understood in that very day, because it was the Jews and the Samaritans fighting, and likely the man who was on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a Jew. They were caught in this generational feud about religious observance. And what the Samaritan displayed was a picture of the kind of boundary-crossing love that Jesus' kingdom is all about. He would not allow someone to suffer just because he might not be from his own tribe, his own religious worldview, his own ethnicity his own socioeconomic status. That's good. But even with all of that said, we're still dealing with the what a little more than we're dealing with the why, which is what happens if you deal with the parable itself in isolation from the initial question that was asked. So when you hear a prime minister or a president or another politician or a business owner or somebody who's working in social justice in our city stand up and talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, they typically do not start where I'm going to take you right now. They start with the parable itself and go, be a Good Samaritan. And I say, that's great, but you're still missing the bigger point. Look back with me at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you see it? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is not merely about how to love your neighbor. It starts out with a religious expert testing Jesus to see if Jesus will give him the biblical answer that he's looking for about how to be right with God. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? He goes, hey, you're the expert. What do you think? How do you read it? He goes, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes, aye, that's right. Now go do it. And it's then that the lawyer knows he's stuck. He can't. He's been caught in his own trap. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Yes, I know what the law says, Jesus. You and me, we're both religious experts. That's good. But who do you think my neighbor is? Seeking to justify himself, he asks, who is my neighbor? Why does he ask to define neighbor? Why does he say, Jesus, tell me who my neighbor is? He's seeking to justify himself. To be justified is to be saved. It is to be a person who has inherited eternal life. That's the conversation that was going on when he broke into it. It goes all the way back to what I said at the beginning of our time. This lawyer comes in and he overhears Jesus talking to the 72 that he sent out and the 72 who've come back. And he reminds them that their primary rejoicing is to be in the relationship they have with him and the fact that their names are written in heaven, not with what they can do now. The 
They needed to rejoice in who they belonged to, not their performance. And this is what prompts the first question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me ask you a question. How do you inherit something? It's not a trick question. Do you do anything? (laughs) Jesus ends up rejecting the premise of this guy's question, which is awesome. Right, if I see somebody, you know, travel over to the west side of Vancouver, find a very large home, check it out. There's no children or grandchildren running around, and I walk up and I say, excuse me, sir, ma'am, nice to meet you. Appears that you have no one to leave all of this to. What could I do for this inheritance? (laughs) They would look at me and go, oh, you're one of the crazies. And because they have a nice home on the west side of Vancouver, they may or may not have security that just takes me out at that time. What do you do to receive an inheritance? The answer is nothing. Your inheritance is defined by who you belong to and who you are related to, not by the things you do. So the premise of the religious expert's question is tossed out. What must I do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) One of the big themes in Luke's gospel, if you read Luke all the way through, is the default human desire for self-justification. I'll tell you, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you hear us talk about all this grace and forgiveness stuff and you go, man, I just want to do something that makes me be okay. Like our impulse is to do, not to receive. And grace makes no sense until you're on the inside. And once you're on the inside, you recognize you need a grace, not because you were so much worse than everybody else, but because nobody qualifies. And that there's nothing that anyone can do to inherit eternal life. The lawyer wants to justify himself and he believes that as long as he can get Jesus to narrowly define neighbor, that he might be able to actually do it, right? To be justified is to be accepted before God. This guy is trying to do it in his own strength and Jesus gives him an answer that presses him toward the depth of his need for help. Through the answer that Jesus gives, the lawyer is starting to see that he cannot simply do this and live in his own strength. He can't do it. Think of it like this. Most of us, when we read this story, right? we read this or, or we've heard this, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian, you've probably heard the story of the Good Samaritan. You have, in broad strokes, an understanding of what went on. There was a priest who did nothing, there was a Levite who did nothing, and there was a Good Samaritan who came in and helped his enemy. Yeah, broad strokes of the story. When we read this story, we typically insert ourselves into it, don't we? Right? And we go, don't be the priest, don't be the Levite, be the Good Samaritan. What if Jesus actually had a different focus in mind here? What if the intent of Jesus telling the story the way that he did had a different intent? What if Jesus' intent is to try to get the lawyer, the religious expert, to see himself not as the priest, not as the Levite, or not as the Good Samaritan, but what if his goal was to help him see himself as the victim of the violent mugging on the road? The one who was robbed and beaten and stripped and left for dead And then through neighborly love from an enemy is saved and provided for and healed. What if that's the goal of the story? What if the goal of the story is not that the religious lawyer knows what he needs to do, but the religious leader understands what he must receive? I had this from Don Carson. He said, who is the ultimate good Samaritan? 
Oh, in the account before us, as Jesus tells it, the Good Samaritan is a figure who represents someone who actually looks after a broken, bruised, unknown man at the side of the road. He has no kinship with him. They are not family. He doesn't know him, yet he sacrifices his good. He risks his life and he pays for his expenses, which actually saved the man from slavery because if the man did not have any resources of his own, again, remember that he's naked, then six weeks later, after the Samaritan has moved on and he wants to leave the hotel and can't pay the bill, he has to sell himself into slavery because after all, in those days, there was no such thing as bankruptcy. The man's generosity has saved him from death and the man's generosity has saved him from slavery. And it's a way of asking the question in the context, who's acting like a neighbor? But now read it on the way to the cross. The ultimate good Samaritan who comes to broken people condemned to death and binds up their wounds and saves their lives and frees them forever from slavery because he pays it all, that man is Jesus. Now that's not why Jesus first told the parable, but that's the way that Luke sees it as he builds his gospel. He inserts it in the narrative from when Jesus begins to head toward the cross. The lawyer thinks, if I can just get an angle on what I need to do, then I'll be able to inherit eternal life. But what happens if you're not the one riding by or walking by? But what if you see yourself as the man unconscious on the ground, unable to save yourself at all? That changes our reading. As I see it, there are two possible outcomes here. Or two, not possible, but two outcomes in this parable. Both of them are good. The first is that we have an inspiring ethical example to imitate, and that is good, and I do not wish to disregard that or underplay that. It's beautiful. But on the other hand, there is this realization through the parable that we cannot justify ourselves. Jesus, the great Samaritan, loves us with a boundary-crossing love, and he loves us while we are still his enemies. Romans chapter 5 tells us this. It says in verse 6, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now look at verse 10. For if while we were still enemies, if we were enemies, We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And to this we say yes and amen. On one hand, the parable gives us an inspiring ethical example to follow, and we cannot miss that. And on the other hand, it leads us to a realization that we can't save ourselves. But hear me. Jesus is the only one who perfectly loved God with his whole heart and soul and strength and with all of his mind and perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. And when Jesus told this parable, the lawyer realized he could not earn eternal life because what Jesus challenged him to do was beyond his capacity. And it's beyond yours too. See, you can't justify yourself. You can't be the neighbor you ought to be. You need another who enters into your neighborhood and who picks you up and cleans you off and who binds up your wounds and who clothes you anew and provides for you so that you can be nursed back to wholeness from your broken state. 
Yes, this leaves us with a powerful ethical example to imitate, but not in order to justify ourselves, but because we ourselves have already been justified. Don't love your neighbor because you're seeking to justify yourself before God. Love your neighbor because you've received justification through the only means that you can, and that is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. Once you have received that, you're truly free to love anyone and everyone as your neighbor. Let's stand and respond.